Welcome to Season 6, Episode 4 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer using the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne. Each week, we study different storytelling principles so that we can deepen our understanding and level up our craft. My name is Anne Hawley, and I will be leading the discussion today. And here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Valerie Francis, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Now, you might have heard the Masterwork Experiment on the main StoryGrid podcast last summer, and I've been hammering away at the story I'm supposed to write based on the beat structure of Brokeback Mountain. If you'd like to get updates on the project or have a look at my draft in progress, you can sign up at annhawley.net slash masterwork. That's A-N-N-E-H-A-W-L-E-Y dot net slash masterwork. Well, this week, because it is our 100th episode... I'm zigging or zagging into some new territory. I've asked the roundtablers to help me in my study of how modern short stories work by analyzing a short story called Wolves of Karelia. This 5,000-word story by Arna Bontomps Hemingway was published last August in The Atlantic. It's a reimagining of events in the life of the Finnish war hero Simo Haya, who was born in 1905 and died in 2002 at the age of 96. Now, to any Finnish speakers we might have in the audience, please forgive my poor attempts at pronouncing Simo's last name. As always, this is going to be an adult conversation. You may hear some adult words, and the story itself, if you have read it or decide to read it, does describe some wartime violence in a certain amount of detail. So I'm going to start by giving us the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff, as we usually do. And I'm going to put a little extra emphasis on certain key words here to help bring out the genre hidden in what, at first glance, might seem like kind of a mashup of genres. I'll have lots to say about that in a little bit. So here's the beginning hook. When Simo Haya, a young Finnish boy, is trained in perfect marksmanship by his harsh and demanding father, he must learn to shoot his own dinner with only a single bullet or else starve. He hits two rabbits with one bullet on the third day and gains both self-respect and his father's esteem. Middle build. Twenty years later, sharpshooter Simo joins the Finnish army in the battle against Russia for his homeland of Karelia. There, he's teamed with M, and they become lovers as well as celebrated snipers, killing hundreds of Russians. But when Russia pours 100,000 troops into Karelia, Simo and M are both almost mortally wounded and are separated. Terribly disfigured, Simo must decide whether to seek M out or remain in hiding. He remains in hiding. Ending payoff. Simo finally goes home from the hospital where his father, now weak and elderly, is killed by wolves during a hunt. Simo unnecessarily kills all the wolves and moves to the city. There he finds M, still in a hospital, and proposes that they live together. But when M turns away from Simo's badly disfigured face, Simo must decide whether to persevere or retreat. He retreats, and he and M remain apart. Now, controlling idea on this, Leslie has more to say on it, but the basic controlling idea for a cautionary status story, which this is, is failure results when a person sells out their values for unworthy goals. And I think a reasonable, specific controlling idea for this story is an existence of purgatory results when a war hero with no mentor can't sustain love or self-esteem once the war ends. It's arguable. We could argue about the controlling idea for this story all day long. Now, the genre here is status tragic, no question about it. This story generated a deep conversation for our fellow StoryGrid certified editor, Rochelle Ramirez, who probably understands the status genre better than anybody. She's given me most of my insights into the genre of this story, and it is clearly a global status story, but why tragic? That's a big question. The value range for status is success to failure to compromise to selling out, where selling out is the equivalent of damnation, and it's the negation of the negation for the genre. Simo, the protagonist, reaches high status as a war hero, but he lacks an adequate mentor, so he never has any way to shift from his desire for that societal validation to some form of internal self-esteem. Instead, when the war is over, 
His hero status means very little to him, but he has nothing to replace it with. He uses his extraordinary skill, his sharpshooting skill, to simply kill a pack of wolves out of revenge, something he said he would never do, and thus takes himself into damnation. Kim has discovered in the past that a global internal genre is often marked by bits and pieces of external genres without requiring that any of them be fully complete. Here we have the strong presence of partial love, war, and performance plots. I'll be talking about how I finally found my way into the heart of this story, specifically why, as a short story, it was tricky. I just had an insight this morning that I haven't had time to test, but I want to mention it here because it could be useful. Writer James Scott Bell talks about a particular event in short stories. He says, a great short story is about the fallout from one shattering moment. It's a point of no return after which the protagonist cannot return to life or the way they see life the same way. The moment can come before or after the story, in the beginning, the middle, or the end, but Bell says it must be there or the story doesn't have legs. Now, I haven't tested this, but as I think back over the short stories I've read, this seems true. Now, my hypothesis, piggybacking on Bell's theory, is that the primary life value shift in the shattering moment and the basic human need at stake is the global genre of the short story, or at least points to the global genre. So what's the shattering moment here? I would say Simo's shattering moment is when he chooses to use his considerable skills to kill the wolves. And in this way, he becomes like the Russians who invaded his homeland. This is a moment when he sells out and violates his inner moral code. It's a tragic mistake that changes the life value and implicates his need for respect and esteem. It means that no matter his desire to reconnect with M, he can't because he's sold out. That's a great insight. And I have never heard of this book, so I'm going to go check it out. Thank you for pointing us to it. I'm going to talk about how contemporary short stories work. I do not know the answer to that question yet. This is, as always, an exploration. And I want to first say a word about short stories. I don't like them. I never read them. And the only reason I read this one was that a trusted friend sent it to me and insisted. Well, I did read it, and I was very deeply struck by it without really understanding it or quite being able to discern its structure. And that's why I chose to look at it for the podcast. And we're going to look at two more kind of like it over the course of season six, because I know that only by digging into types of stories that aren't easy for me, will I learn anything new and level up my craft. Turns out, reading this one and analyzing it was a thrill for me. When I first encountered this story a few months ago, I experienced it very much the way I experienced Brokeback Mountain, as primarily a tragic or forbidden love story. But isn't there really a war story in here, or maybe a bit of a performance story? Yeah. Well, it's a global status story. But why are war and performance and status stories, and even sometimes a certain kind of love story, so hard to tease apart? I have a theory. Because war, performance, and status fall squarely into the esteem tank of human needs, where what we think of ourselves and what others think of us defines the life value of our story in some way. Winning and losing, victory and defeat, rising or falling, honor or dishonor, all these values kind of swim around in that esteem tank. What seems to me that Wolves of Karelia falls entirely into that tank whichever genre leaps out at you, whether war, performance, love, or status. We'll be hearing more about this on the flagship podcast eventually, but I have the inside scoop, so here it is. Instead of the simple binary between the external genres and the internal genres, we are going to start talking about the transitional genres. And I have to give credit to Rochelle Ramirez here. She came up with the term and the theory. It's very brilliant, and Sean is taking it on board. Transitional genres live wholly or partly in that esteem tank of human needs, and they include society, war, performance, and status stories. I'm going to stick my oar in that water and say that certain tragic or forbidden love stories, like what we find in Wolves of Karelia and Brokeback Mountain, are also transitional. 
All these story types turn on all three types of validation, internal validation or personal self-esteem, interpersonal validation or the love or regard of another person, and external validation, which is the approval of the wider group or society. This is brand new stuff and lots of work still to be done, so stay tuned. Now, my study for season six isn't particularly about genre. I set out to learn how a short story of 5,000 words can contain so much meaning, so much emotion, and such a long time span. How is it that a story that took me about 20 minutes to read could continue to unfold in my mind for weeks? It revealed more with each reading, and it gave rise to several hours, literally several hours of fascinated deciphering effort by a bunch of StoryGrid certified editors, everyone on this podcast, and plus Rochelle Ramirez. I think the answer lies on the far side of the line where story structure principles give way to line writing, and this is an area that has fascinated me right from the outset. I'm talking here about motifs, symbolism, and specific word choices. Of course, no matter whether you're writing an epic multi-part fantasy adventure or a super lean short story, obviously word choice matters. Symbolism and repeated motifs can play a role in adding depth and meaning to any story of any length. But when you've only got 5,000 words to convey your genre, your controlling idea, your setting, your characters, and your beginning, middle, and end, obviously every single word counts. Every word choice must do double and triple duty, and that includes the duty of adhering to the story spine as dictated by your genre. So let's look at some specific word choices and line writing. The very first line of Wolves of Karelia is, Do you see, my father said? This is not some random choice on the author's part. The story contains 23 more instances of seeing, being seen, spotting, looking down a rifle sight, and disappearing. Seeing and being seen are integral to stories that swim around in that esteem tank. Everyone needs to be regarded by others. So the first line already hints at the genre, and if that flies past you, as it flew past me on first reading, and second reading and third, the genre is fully revealed in the rest of the opening scene, which clearly turns on success and failure. And Kim's going to give us that opening scene pretty soon here. It took me several careful readings to pull out and tabulate all the other motifs in the story. In addition to that seeing motif that I just mentioned, I found the following ones. And this is not even an exhaustive list. It's just the most often recurring and obvious ones. Father his father, Papa, who's the commanding officer of the regiment that Simo is in, 34 instances. Froze, freeze, frozen, and ice, 17 instances. Hunt, hunted and hunting, 13 instances. Body and bodies, 12 instances. Name or nickname and being called by something, 12 instances. Clear, clearing, and clarity, 12 instances. Warm, warmth, hot, and sun, 12 instances. Wolf and wolves, six instances, not counting the title. Fox, foxes, and Kituseni, which was M's nickname for Simo, meaning little fox, four instances. Each motif in this story is meaningful and adds richness and depth to the story without adding extra words. Now, what do I mean by that? I like to think of it this way. Given the basic story idea, which is the reimagining of the true historical story of a Finnish war hero of the Winter War in 1939, you've got a hundred ways you could go. Now, the setting dictates extreme cold, ice, and snow, certainly, but in 5,000 words, you don't have space for descriptions alone. So what else can ice and snow stand for? Well, clarity, brilliance, blinding light. Are you seeing some of those other motifs coming in here and merging? Also, harshness and danger. So out of the four seasons of the year, you decide to imagine Simo's lessons in survival as a boy taking place in the winter. Simo's father is harsh, but you don't need to say that. You let the environment do double duty and triple duty. It ties the harsh father and the harsh climate together and lets you, the reader, sense the connection between all those things. This layering of motifs and symbols continues in every scene. Let me give you one more example. 
There's not a lot of dialogue in this story, but what little there is has been carefully chosen to feel realistic, natural, but also to convey extra meaning. And here's a good example. During their first practice shooting session together, Simo gets irritated with M because M won't conform to the rule of calling out the distance to the target. It goes like this. Aren't you going to inform me? I said to him. He spoke without opening his eyes. No, he said. You're not, I said. He shrugged. I know who you are, he said. Realistically, M could have said, you don't need me to inform you, or you are the expert, or you already know what the distance is. But instead, he says the words that the status protagonist most needs to hear. I know who you are. Choices like that are not accidental. Now, I have no idea how much time Hemingway spent on this story, or how long his first draft was compared to this final draft. But a close study of the text proves to me that to carry such a large freight of meaning in so few words requires that he consciously considered every single word choice. I've created a study document that includes the fool's cap, a scene-by-scene analysis, and notes on the repeated motifs in this story, and all of that will be linked in the show notes. I'm going to continue looking at tightly written modern short stories for the rest of the season to test my ideas and maybe learn to write one myself. Everyone else has done a lot of fresh new work in this new area for the podcast, so it's time for me to pass the mic to Leslie. Leslie, you've dug into the point of view and narrative device, which is really interesting in this story. Tell us what you discovered. Yes, I am studying point of view and narrative device this season, and that means I'm focusing on how you present the global genre must-haves of your story to the reader. Some useful tools or approaches that I've found to understand this critical part of the story include connecting the narrative device or situation, that is the who, to whom, when, where, how, and why of the story, to the controlling idea, as well as thinking about the narrative problem or challenge presented by the premise of the story. Now, in the case of a short story, I would add considering the best way to present the shattering moment. In a novel, you might think about it as the core event. So in other words, looking at how you can best showcase that big moment the reader is looking forward to, to deliver your message. So I'm starting with what's the narrative problem or problems presented by the premise and One problem occurs when we write about historical figures. There's a certain level of dramatic irony, especially among the people who know the story. Now, I wasn't familiar with Simo before reading the story, but unless historical events or historical figures are presented as an alternate history, like Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, you're working more or less with the facts and filling in or exploring the whys and hows of the characters' actions. Georgia, a novel by Don Tripp, is a novel-length example of this. So the objective parts of the point of view and narrative device inquiry include straight up, what's the point of view? Here we have first person past tense, and we'll make sense of that in context as we go. What are the channels of information we have available to us? Because it's first person, we have Simo's thoughts, perceptions, feelings, his spoken words and actions, and of course, the spoken words and actions of the characters he encounters. It's past tense, so we get some perspective on the events of the story. So what's the narrative device? Now, part of this is clear. We have an overt narrator in first person. So that means we know who is telling the story. But the rest of the answers to the questions about the narrative situation are based on what we can infer from the details and the way they're shared. So when I do this analysis, I assume that everything is intentional and there for a reason, and I make my best guess about what's happening. So first we want to look at, again, who's telling the story. Simo is a national hero who, despite this status, hasn't lived a very fulfilling life. 
he felt most alive during the 98 days of the war, spending time with M. But since then and before, his life lacked meaning and fulfillment. When is the narrator telling the story relative to the events he's sharing? Most of the events Simo describes are in the distant past. He's an old man revealing key events of his life. Where does the narrator stand in relation to the events he's sharing? Simo is both inside the story as the protagonist and a reflecting character, but he's also outside the story as the narrator serving a telling function. And again, time gives him perspective on the events from his childhood and early adulthood. Now we're going to get on shaky ground a little bit when we ask, to whom is the story being told? Although Simo sometimes seems to lapse into private thoughts, the details of the narrative and the way he shares them indicate he's telling someone else the story. So he includes contextual details that are unnecessary within private thoughts. For example, I was 10, which was as close as he ever got to good cheer. I was born the last of four brothers. In other words, he is anchoring the events and the information that he provides with context in a way that appears to be assigning meaning for someone else. Now, once Anne said that this reminded her of an interview, I couldn't see it any other way. An interview by someone who is not of Simo's generation, someone younger, but who obviously knows who he is and understands his status as a national hero. And when I look at it really closely, each section appears to be the answer to a question. One thing I want to point out here is that some of the elements of this narrative device are overt. That is, the writer reveals who is speaking and when, but some of the other elements remain covert, that is, not revealed. So it's not an all-or-nothing proposition. You can share certain details about the narrative device, the narrator, the narrative situation, and withhold certain others as is needed for your story. So in what form, by implication, are we looking at this? Is Simo telling our interviewer this information? Well, I've given it away there. The form seems to be spoken. And I'm inferring this, of course, based on the same details I mentioned earlier and the way they're presented. Now, if he were writing some of these details, he probably would have taken out. He might have done some revision. The delivery here feels informal. So while I agree with Anne that even the micro choices by the writer in this case were intentionally considered, the details and the reflective versus telling aspects of the narrative are intermingled in a way that suggests someone speaking. So why is Simo telling the story to the interviewer? Again, I'm kind of giving it away. Assuming that the narrative device is correct, on the surface, Simo is simply answering the interviewer's questions, perhaps trying to be helpful, but it feels like his essential action becomes to sum things up for himself as much as for the interviewer. Now, one thing I've noticed is that short stories seem to focus on one or more of the five commandments. For example, The Greatest Gift, which was adapted into It's a Wonderful Life, they both feel like crisis stories to me. And this one feels like a resolution. It's the result or the consequences of Simo's choice to kill the wolves. And what does it all come to? And the conclusion about his tragic mistake seems to be what this whole story is about. Now, how does this connect to the controlling idea? I would adjust the controlling idea a little bit to say a protagonist becomes mired in moral purgatory when he violates his moral code as a result of misfortune, preventing connection or enjoyment of success. Again, like Anne said, we could argue that and we could adjust that and come to a clearer, more precise controlling idea. But I think that 
kind of captures my view and the way I'm looking at the story. So how well does this all work? How well does the writer solve the problem presented by the premise with the narrative device and deliver the shattering moment? The key elements in my mind include the point of view choice. A first person narrative allows us to have access to his thoughts and feelings. It is Simo's view of himself that really matters, not other people's. And here we receive the information, the story, the events in Simo's own words, which is really important. Now, these choices allow us to derive a prescriptive lesson from the story, from the source. The time frame allows lots of perspective, and the covert interview questions that I'm inferring from the story move Simo to assess his life, to look at these events and ask the question, what does it all come to? So in the end, everything builds to the moment in his life when he sold out, and we see through his eyes the fallout or resolution of that tragic mistake. Now, could the writer have chosen a better way to present this story, the shattering moment, and to deliver the controlling idea? Perhaps, but in my mind, it's hard to imagine. Now, this is a relatively quick analysis of the story, and a deeper study would reveal more about it. But to me, the narrative device and point of view, combined with the controlling idea, are all in alignment, and they deliver the shattering moment in a powerful way that sticks with us. It really does. Your insight that maybe short stories focus on one of the five commandments over the others is just brilliant. I'm really excited about it, and I will be taking it into account in uh, my further studies this season. Kim is still continuing her look at story beginnings and establishing life values in the beginning of the story. So Kim, tell us what you got. Okay, so initial disclaimer, I have my sexy Kim voice on because I have a cold, so you're going to have to deal with it. Try to control yourselves, everyone. Okay, so this week was a lot of fun because I got to play at the line level, something that we can't do when we're analyzing a film. Now, this season in general, I'm examining the crucial role that beginnings play in a story, how the status quo establishes life values and introduces conventions that lead up to the value shift in the inciting incident. So this week, I decided to analyze the opening scene of Wolves of Corellia to see how it's functioning for the reader. I used Sean's beat-by-beat analysis method as modeled in the Masterwork Experiment on the flagship podcast with our very own Anne and in the StoryGrid Ground Your Craft course. One thing I love about StoryGrid is that it has tools that allow us to analyze every unit of story, from the global all the way down to the beat. This beat-by-beat analysis lets us break a scene into its component beats and then even examine the elements within the beats to further understand how and why it's working, or in many cases, you know, not working. This tool is not something you'd want to use until you have a solid grasp on the global structure and how each scene is turning and contributing to it. But then, whether for your own work or studying a masterwork, a beat-by-beat analysis can really open your eyes to the details that make a good story a great story. To begin, I'm going to read you the opening scenes of Wolves of Corellia. It's 403 words and should take about three minutes. Then I'll walk you through beat-by-beat and show you what I found. But before we begin, let's talk about how we define a beat. Sean tells us a beat is an identifiable moment of change. That means there is a turning point where a life value shift occurs. You might think of it like a single commandment in a scene, although a scene can be made up of any number of beats. And the beats themselves also contain five commandments, although not all of them will necessarily appear on the page. Just like a scene, many of the commandments are omitted or inferred. But the trajectory of the beat still contains them, creating a beginning, middle, and end, or as I'm growing fonder of saying, a before, during, and after. Okay, here is the opening scene of Wolves of Corellia. One, distance. Do you see, my father said. I breathed in and out, the air shallow in my chest. I was ten. 
On the way back from his dawn hunt, my father had sliced the tip off a reindeer antler and placed it somewhere in the array of space and field behind our cabin. My job was to find it. We were on our stomachs in the snow, under the stand of trees where, in summer, our horse Timu lowered his gray face in the shade. We'd been here for two hours, waiting while I looked and looked for the tip, which would be our target. Yes, my father said. I nodded. Where? The fang, I said. This was the shattered birch trunk that had split the year before last in a storm and now stood jagged and lonely at the edge of the far field. Well, five steps before it. How far from our position, he said. He would aim only and exactly as I instructed. Such was his test. 148 meters, I said. My father turned his round, dull eyes to me. You're sure? I nodded. Go mark it then, he said, and moved the rifle from where it lay between us. Progress was slow in the snow. As I approached the fang, the sun hit the ice covering the old silver wood and made it sharp with light. I turned and faced the place I knew my father was, though you'd never be able to see him, not if you looked for a whole month. I counted five steps back toward him and stopped. The shot rang like a bell in the frozen clearing that pocketed the cabin and the shed and our two fields. The spray of ice shards hit my face so hard that I fell backwards, and I stared at the place where the bullet had obliterated the tiny piece of antler poking maybe five centimeters above the snow, just between my feet. If I'd said 149 meters or taken six steps instead of five, my father's round would have passed through my stomach. When I got back to the cabin, he was already inside, the rifle half disassembled. 148 meters, he said, and glanced at me before going back to wiping the bolt, which was as close as he ever got to good cheer. And then he said what he always said. You're only wrong once, Simona. Okay, 403 words that make such a powerful scene. So let's dig into the beats. Beat one, I'm calling it lay of the land, and it's 104 words. It opens with the father saying, did you see? And it ends with the sentence that says, we'd been here for two hours waiting while I looked and looked for the tip, which would be our target. Now, functionally, this beat introduces the two onstage characters, the father and the narrator, Simo. It provides clues to the time period. We know that it's winter when the narrator was 10 and the location, it's a field behind their home cabin and they're on the ground under some trees. We get the duration, approximately two hours so far, and the character's goal. The narrator is searching for the tip of the ranger antler that his father has hidden so that it can be their target. The father's character is introduced as dangerous with words like hunt and sliced, as well as the situation that he has created this test for his son. The revelation, to the reader at least, that the father has his 10-year-old son on his stomach in the snow for two hours, searching for a white antler in a snowy field to be a target. All of this increases the elements of danger. Either that the father would make his son do this unnecessarily, just for sport, or that it is necessary for survival. Either way, the narrator's situation is not fully known to the reader, but it's perceived as dangerous. This unknown, dangerous situation introduces narrative drive as mystery, something that the narrator knows, but we do not. The turning point of this beat feels like a revelation that it's been two hours in the snow. The life value shift goes from safe to at risk, and the polarity here is positive to negative. In beat two, I'm calling this the mentor's test, and it's 100 words, and it's basically that section of dialogue where the father asks if he's seen it and tell the point where he says, go mark it then, and picks up the rifle. This beat propels the action with progressive complications. The narrator has spotted the antler, which is positive. It's a tool for him. He can get out of the snow even sooner now. And he reports that position to his father. It's then revealed that the father will be the one shooting, not the son, and that he will aim only and exactly as his son instructs. Now, to me, this feels like a negative, an obstacle that heightens the son's risk. And also we learn that this is the test. The father asks for the precise distance. Again, this feels like an obstacle that heightens his risk. And then he verifies it with his son. Now this I could take as positive or negative. Maybe his father wants to ensure that his son is sure, or maybe he only wants to cast doubt. 
The son confirms and then is told to go market, and the father takes the rifle. And again, this is another negative that increases danger. We also see additional characterization of the father mentor. He would aim only and exactly as I instructed. Such was his test. This indicates that his father is a man of zero compromise. And we also learn that he has round, dull eyes, which indicates emotional distance. I mark the turning point here as an active turning point when Simo is told to go market. Now, this value shift takes him from being at risk to further in danger and a polarity shift as negative to double negative. Beat three, I'm calling the student at the mercy of the mentor. And it's 145 words and it is two paragraphs where Simo walks out to mark his spot and then when the shot actually takes place. The major action of the scene where the true nature of the test and the danger is revealed. We see life and death stakes and a child at the mercy of the mentor. Notice that the son counts his five steps towards his father and then stops. Then immediately the shot rings out. There is no hesitation on the father's part. We see the effect of the blast and how close the son was to being shot. Also, we recognize that this may not have been the first time and is certainly not going to be the last time that this happens. It's a horrific sort of Russian roulette or maybe Finnish roulette in this case. Now, the turning point here feels active when the shot rings out. It hits the target, which thankfully is not the sun. Now, this value shift here goes from endangered to safe, which is a negative to a positive. But I also noticed that this is probably the moment that Anne marked when she was analyzing the scene. There's another turning point that feels revelatory, where the son realizes how close he was to actually being shot. And this has a value shift that seems to go from triumph to terror and a positive to a negative. Now, the fourth and final beat I'm calling the student's reward, which is only 54 words, when he returns to the cabin. The father is further solidified as a present but flawed mentor. He doesn't wait for his son to come in. He merely glances at him when he does, and he doesn't encourage or praise him ever, but instead focuses on the risk of being wrong always. The turning point here, again, feels like the end of the scene. It's active when the father says, you're only wrong once, Simona. And the value shift here seems to go from acknowledged to warned, and the polarity shift is positive to negative. We see that while he may be safe for the moment, his father will continue to put him in danger. Now, the title of this section of the story is Distance, which literally is the distance that Simo marks for his father's shot, but it's also the emotional distance between them. This establishes that present but flawed mentor that is an essential convention of the status tragic genre. The life values established in this scene point to a variety of genre possibilities that a reader is unconsciously picking up on. We have life and death, respect and shame, success and failure, as well as power and impotence. Everything in the scene contributes to shock and the sense of foreboding that the reader experiences by the end, which they carry forward with them into the rest of the story. And like our story from last week, Whiplash, this is another example of a killer opening scene that hooks us and establishes essential elements for the next part of the story. You can check out the show notes to see the analysis more closely, and I encourage you to give this kind of analysis a try. Pick a scene from your favorite short story or novel and practice looking at it at the micro level. Then you can take it one step further by applying what you learn to an original scene of your own. This is precisely what Anne has done with Brokeback Mountain and what we do in the Story Grid Grounder Craft course. In fact, an anthology of 12 original short stories is being published by StoryGrid Publishing in May 2020, and each of these stories were crafted using the beat-by-beat framework of a masterwork story or scene, so definitely stay tuned for that. Thank you, Kim. I'm editing one of the stories in that anthology, and I cannot wait to read the rest now that I'm into short stories. Thank you for your good work here. I know how hard it is to find beats the first time you try it and how much practice it takes to get good at it because I had to do a lot of it. As for scene types, a topic which Valerie and I sometimes get back to, I wrote in my annotation that this whole opening scene is a mentor-pupil training scene. In a story like this one with no mustache-twirling villain, forces of antagonism are pretty hard to spot. And Valerie is going to tell us her views on the forces of antagonism in this story. Yeah, there's lots of things I can say about this short story, but I really had to use discipline (laughs) this week and stick to my study 
of forces of antagonism because I want to see how that story principle works or doesn't work in as many stories as possible. Because stories are art, they're inherently subjective. They'll resonate with some people and not with others. And when we studied Whiplash and admitted that it wasn't her cup of tea, but because the story grid tools allow us to look at art objectively, she was still able to have valuable insight into the film. So this week, I'm intentionally putting my personal taste aside and viewing The Wolves of Corelia objectively. And no, that does not mean that I disliked it. <laughs> it means I have my editor hat on. So let's go back to basics for a minute. Stories are about change, and it's the force, or forces, of antagonism that create that change. The antagonist wants one thing, the protagonist wants another, and that creates a point of conflict. A working story has conflict at the macro and micro levels. These principles are really easy to understand when we apply them to global external genre stories, like superhero movies, because the conflict is primarily in the physical world. And when we consume stories through film or television, we can literally see the conflict on the screen. But what happens when we're dealing with global internal content stories or stories that are on the page? In stories that work, the forces of antagonism must be equally present, although they'll be handled very differently. This is one of the reasons why, as writers, it's crucial that we consume stories widely and deeply, across genre, but also across medium. We interviewed Sean about this very thing for the podcast one time, and the episode is called Sean on Reading, and I'll link to it in the show notes. So what are the forces of antagonism in The Wolves of Corelia? Well, I think it's pretty easy to spot them, sorta, kinda. <laughs> Externally, there's Simo's father and the Russian army. Socially, it's Simo's love for M and social attitudes generally. And what about internally? Well, those are a little harder to find, but I'll talk about that in a minute. After determining that all three types of antagonism are in fact present, my next step was to examine them one at a time and figure out what role they play, how effective they are, and so on. All right. The first part of the story is subtitled Distance, and this is what Kim was just talking about. And this is when Simo's father is teaching him to hunt with precision. Now, his father here is both a mentor and an antagonist. But since this isn't a working scene, in my opinion, his role as antagonist is watered down considerably. There's no real tension between them or sense of danger. Unlike Kim, I didn't think for one second that his father was actually going to shoot him. Hemingway establishes the stakes after we know that Simo is okay, like the life and death stakes, that is. Only after the threat has passed do we understand that a meter or a step wrong would have put him at physical risk. But then, was Simo really at risk? I don't think so. Not life and death risk. Those weren't the stakes there. Now, if you think about this story as a status story, where that all that performance and all those types of stakes are at play, where you have honor and dishonor, those stakes are on the table because Simu doesn't want to look like a fool in front of his father, right? Here, his father's role is 95% mentor and 5% antagonist. And the antagonism is only given as a challenge to teach Simo to get him to level up. Plus, they both want the same thing, and that's to turn Simo into an excellent marksman. Now, we had a very similar kind of thing happening with Whiplash and Black Swan. Fletcher and Thomas existed to bring out the best in their students. In those cases, the mentors and the students wanted the same thing as well, right, for the student to level up. But both Fletcher and Thomas are definitely antagonists because both Andrew and Nina are at risk of getting hurt by them, and they really are hurt by them. So for me, rather than this being a working scene that incites the story, it's more of an account of the lesson. The Russians, or more precisely the Russian army, is another external antagonist, but they too have been diluted. They're off stage most of the time, and when they're on stage, they're not much of a threat. One soldier was an unarmed deserter who begged to stay. He's a victim in that scene, not an antagonist. 
And again, that scenario is presented not as a working scene, but as an account of what happened. This totally lends credibility to what Leslie was talking about uh, in terms of narrative device and this being an interview. In the section subtitled The Hunt, we see Simo killing an encampment of Russian soldiers. Now, given the topic, I'd expect an internal force of antagonism to arise. Yes, Simo has been taught to hunt his whole life, but unless he's a, he's a machine, wouldn't he have some feeling for what he's about to do? Now, I'm not talking about some massive moral crisis in that moment. That wouldn't be in character. What I'm talking about is some awareness of what he's doing, and even like a teeny tiny little bit would do, just enough to show his humanity, because he does have it. Absolutely, he has it. Also, the Russian soldiers don't fight back. Because of that, as a force of antagonism, they fall flat. In fact, they become victims. When Simo is shot in the face on the 98th day, the Russians finally become the antagonists we expect to see in a war story. And I mean, this is probably one of the reasons why Anne was thinking about a war story, right? So if the external forces of antagonism are mostly ineffective, how do the internal and social forces of antagonism fare? Well, I've already mentioned Simo's internal struggle briefly. When it comes to killing enemy soldiers, Simo doesn't struggle that much, or at least not in the way that Hemingway presents it. Now, I mean, this could be one of the points of the story, right? Simo has been trained from childhood to be a sharpshooter. And presumably the army has trained him to be a killer and he cannot do that job if he's racked with emotion all the time. He does nonetheless feel. He is definitely not a robot. And I think this was a bit of a missed opportunity here. I, I don't think the Hemingway ruined the story, but personally I would have liked just a tiny little bit more volume on that one. All right, this brings me to society as an antagonist. And I think that of all the three types of forces of antagonism, this is the most effective. Now, why do I say that? Simo's in love with M, but it's a forbidden love. Society will not allow these two soldiers to have a romantic relationship. Point final. Now, M's feelings are less certain and I think if the level of affection had been equal, then once they reunited in the village years later, they would have at least remained friends. Did M love him in the moment? Well, possibly. Simo certainly believed him too. And finally, society attacks, quote unquote, attacks Simo when he's discharged from service because he looks so scary. He was shot in the face in the course of duty, but he's not cherished as a defender of the people. Leslie referred to him as being a war hero, and I'm sure he is recognized to a point. I mean, he does say that reporters come and talk to him, but the loneliness and the sorrow in the story makes me feel that he is not revered. He is not on a pedestal in society as we kind of would hope he would be. Journalists are curious about his sharpshooting skill and still ask him about the number of kills he made but he's not really cherished as a defender of the people. Because of what society has done to him, what it has made him become, Simo is alone. All he has is a memory of lying next to M in the snow. So to recap, it's society's expectations that caused Simo's father to raise him the way he did. It was society's expectations of Simo and his brothers that caused them to go to war and ultimately become victims of the war. And it's society's intolerance of same-sex relationships that forces Simo and M to hide their love, and it results in Simo being alone. Now, I had to really dig to find this common antagonist from the beginning to the end. And even now that I've identified society as the prime villain, it feels very offstage. And so far offstage that it's not as effective as it could have been. Think about Brokeback Mountain, and how powerful that story is, and how clearly Annie Prue presented society as the antagonist. Wolves of Karelia is more of an essay, in my opinion, than a story. That doesn't mean it's less valuable, but it's a different beast. Remember, most readers are not going to sit down and analyze what you've written, not like we've been doing here on the podcast. 
They'll read it once. <laughs> They'll pick up on the fundamentals like the force of antagonism and the elements in the editor's six core questions subconsciously. So if you take the time to identify your primary villain, then a lot of other things start to fall into place for you. You'll know what the point of conflict is in a scene, and that will naturally lead you to the five commandments, to the development of a character arc, and so on. So whether you're in the drafting stage or the editing stage, identify who or what your forces of antagonism are. Make sure they're creating conflict in every unit of story. Thank you, Valerie. It is definitely not a story for everyone, and it decidedly doesn't work quite the way we would like every story to work. I find that in a lot of the contemporary short stories like this one that are published in places like The Atlantic and New Yorker, which are the American, anyway, primary sources of short fiction these days in the literary realm. There's so much great stuff happening in this story that I don't want to leave people with the idea that I hated it because I certainly didn't. What I would like to shine a light on, because this comes up a lot when I'm talking to writers, and I'm sure it does for you too, Anne and, and Leslie and, and Kim, there's a difference between the pretty metaphors and the pretty sentences and the story structure. And the pretty sentences and the pretty metaphors are the icing on the cake. So I'm constantly trying to get people to look at the structure first, make sure that's solid, and then add the other stuff. Now, I don't think Wolves of Karelia suffers dramatically from it, or doesn't really suffer at all, really. I just would have liked the forces of antagonism to be beefed up a little bit, because I think that would have enhanced all of the other great stuff that's in the story. That's a really good point, Valerie. And there's another point to be made here about target audience and how big or small you want your target audience to be or are willing to have your target audience be. And stories like this probably intentionally narrow their target audience to a fairly select group of readers. I don't disagree with that. I hope that my study over the course of this season on short stories will help me understand the inner workings of this particular form. And that is, I guess I'm talking about literary short stories, because it's my theory that they do have one and that it's its own thing. Well, we'd like to round out our discussion with a few key takeaways for writers and ask ourselves, what is the least a writer needs to know in order to take the next step in their own writing? So let's hear from Leslie. Well, what's coming up consistently for me this season already is the importance of attention to detail. The right details create layers that make a story rereadable, allowing it to stick with the reader long after they reach the end. The global elements are vital, and the micro details, that is the way we execute the global elements, are vital too. So my key takeaway this week is kind of what we've been saying so far this season. The opening scene of your story is so important. It hooks the reader, it introduces key elements that establish the genre, and it sets the tone for the rest of the story. So not only should you use global storytelling tools to discern which moment to feature as your story's opening, but you can also use micro tools to ensure that it's effectively crafted to deliver its maximum impact. For my part, the key takeaway is this. Whether you're in the drafting stage or the editing stage, or whether you consider yourself to be a literary writer or not, identify who or what your forces of antagonism are and make sure they're creating conflict in every unit of story. And my takeaway for listeners, who I hope are all writers, is go and read this story if you have it already. Or choose a different contemporary short story. If you're used to novels and full-length films, you might feel confused about the genre or the nonlinear timeline. I did. If you're tempted to say, eh, it's not for me, it's literary, keep going anyway. Read with your body, as Christopher Vogler says, and notice what scene or phrase evokes emotion in you. That's your way in. For me, it was actually the very last line of the story. You may have to slow your mind way down to find the treasures locked inside these short 5,000 words. I did. But be willing to do that exercise of slowing down your mind and reading things that you don't normally like to read because the exercise will make you a better writer. So to wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Kenneth the Menace on voicemail. Let's have a listen. 
I'm having a problem applying the fool's cap to my story. It's a long mini-plot fantasy. In it, there are two large competing societies, A and B, a smaller third society, C, which gets crushed in the first act, and the protagonists group between them. Their actions and consequences weave between and intersect with each other at various points until they all collide at the end. And basically, it's difficult for me to plot it all as a single story. There are essentially seven main characters. One, the protagonist and his magical companion. Two, the protagonist's sidekick. Three, a survivor from Society C. Four, an outcasted soldier from Society B who protects number three. And these four uh, find each other in the second act but are separate before then. Five is the villain very isolated throughout the whole story. Number six is the leader of Society A, and number seven is the leader of Society B, and those two only confront at the end. My issue is this. All of these characters walk very different paths. Their steps do not always directly impact the protagonist. I feel like I would have to make at least three different fool's caps to encompass the bare bones of the story. But does that defeat the purpose of this method? Am I doing something wrong? Have I failed as a writer? Thank you very much for your time. Hey, Kenneth the Menace. Thanks so much for your question. When you're telling a story like yours with so many characters, locations, and plots happening all at once, it can definitely be unclear how to best apply the tools and how to best tell the story. But in a story of this scale, it is even more critical that you have a cohesive story spine of 15 core scenes united under a global genre, which is precisely what we get on The Fool's Cap. Before you can answer the 15 core scenes, though, you need to answer the editor's six core questions. And another important thing to consider is, are you planning your story or are you revising your story? The lens we use to look at story differs slightly depending on which phase of the creative process we're in. So if you are in the editing-revising phase, I have a couple pieces of advice that I hope will help you approach your story and the story grid tools with more clarity. Now, even though you have seven main characters and three or four different groups, you still only have one global genre. So shift your thinking from tracking your protagonist to tracking your global genre shifts. With an ensemble cast like yours, or, you know, Game of Thrones or Love Actually, your 15 core scenes may not have any one of your main characters on stage at all times. Remember, your main characters are one element of telling your story, but you are the architect. So zoom out of your protagonist's point of view to that 30,000-foot view and gain a global perspective. From your new godlike state, consider how the story will be experienced by the reader. How does the value shift of each scene affect them and their perception of the story? In other words, how do the scene's shifts affect the global life values? If you were to plot your entire story on a story grid graph, according to the global life values at stake, which scenes would stand out? Now, if you haven't already landed on a global external genre, then this is definitely step one. But after that, it's identifying the 15 core scenes for that genre, regardless of which characters are in the scene. These are going to be your five commandments of your beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. Each of these scenes should turn on your global life values at stake. If not, maybe it's not the core scene, or maybe you just need to revise the scene. So I do recommend completing a single fool's cap for your global genre, but after that, it is definitely valid to identify the other arcs, subplots that exist in your story and see how they're operating over the spine. So if you're planning a novel, I'm going to hand the mic over to Valerie. <laughs> Thanks, Kim. Yes, because I am using the story grid as a planning tool right now. And one of the key things that I've discovered is that we need to take the editor's six core questions in order. I don't know about any of you guys, but I'm so anxious to get writing that I keep jumping ahead to the writing and then I get lost and confused or I write myself in a corner and I don't know what I'm doing anymore because I haven't taken the time to clearly articulate, for example, the objects of desire for my protagonist and my antagonist. I haven't taken the time to fully consider what the internal genre is that pairs with my external genre. And I'm writing a global external genre novel. It's a psychological thriller. So all of the lessons that I am learning now as I write, I'm keeping notes on it all. And Leslie is my very kind and patient editor. 
And she's keeping notes on her end. And we're compiling this into a book that we're tentatively calling Story Grid Start to Finish. So it'll sort of give you a view of how we're tackling this and how we're using the Story Grid tools from beginning to end. The other thing that I noticed is when we, when I got to the 15 core scenes, in the planning stage, I might not know exactly what the scene will be, but I do know what is going to happen in the scene. Like, for example, I'll know that at the end of the middle build, I'll have an all is lost moment. So my middle build crisis will be a best bad choice. And it'll be between this and that, but I don't know what scene will give rise to those options yet. So I give myself lots of leeway in terms of the exact content of the scene, but I'll identify the thing that that scene needs to accomplish. I hope that makes sense. And if you want to follow my journey as I'm writing the novel and using the story grid tools as planning tools, sign up to my inner circle, valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle. And that's where I'm sharing that stuff. I just got so excited listening to that because I am, of course, also working on a long short story or novella. And I was thinking through my process while you were talking. It's very, very valuable. Thank you. If you have a question about constructing a short story or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. Well, that wraps it up for this week. It's a great discussion. Thank you, Leslie, Kim, and Valerie, for your outstanding and in-depth editorial insights into Wolves of Karelia. And thank you for being willing to step out on this new limb with me. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to think about writing short stories or making motifs and symbolism do double and triple duty in your writing of any length. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. And if you want to connect to one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to get updates on my own short fiction work for the Masterwork Experiment or would like to have a look at my draft in progress, you can sign up at anhollynet slash masterwork. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. It really makes a difference. Join us next time when Leslie will continue her deep study of point of view and narrative device with the 2006 film Away From Her and the Alice Munro short story it's based on entitled The Bear Came Over the Mountain. You can find the short story on the New Yorker website and the film on iTunes, Amazon, and Google Play. Why not give it a read and a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. 